Alicia G. Longwell is the Lewis B. and Dorothy Coleman Chief Curator, Art and Education at the Parish Art Museum in Watermill, New York. She has organized numerous survey and solo exhibitions on Marsden Hartley, Frederick Kiesler, Dorothea Rockburn, Ellen Shields, and Jack Youngerman. Longwell received her PhD from the Graduate Center, City University of New York, where her dissertation topic was John Graham, the subject of a retrospective she organized for the Parish Art Museum in 2017. Alicia Longwell, welcome to the creative process. Thank you. So the, you're the curator of the Parish Art Museum, and we're just now standing in... This is the entry galleries, uh, the inaugural gallery to our permanent collection installation here. I'm the Lewis B. and Dorothy Coleman chief curator here yes. at the museum, and uh, have a special interest, of course, in our collection. We reinstall it every year on the anniversary of moving in in November 2012. This was newly uh, opened in 2012. Uh, we look at different overall themes every year when we reinstall the collection, and this year it is Every Picture Tells a Story, which fits in yeah. uh, quite well with many of the uh, ideas that are sort of in, in currency. I was interested to see talking about our politics here in the U.S. and. Oh. Politicians are storytellers. Of course. <laughs> you yeah. know, because they bring in their own uh, uh, lives, and that's, that's something what we do. I think painters as well, mm -hmm. artists, sculptors, printmakers, they bring in something of their own lives as well, and so thereby the story hangs. But um, uh, this year, especially with this series of paintings by David Sally, which are um, called the Michelangelo series. He looked at the, it was a commission to uh, have come up with his own themes sort of from some of the major themes in Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel. So what's interesting about these stories, which of course were based in Genesis, is that Sally layers on his own stories. So that creative process is very interesting and in the fact that the uh, Michelangelo figures are somewhat in the background and uh, David introduces themes from the current uh, political, social situations as well. Yeah, and it makes us see then the original work and this contrast between the present yes. and the past and different cultures, we should say. Absolutely. Uh, you know, uh, Eastern culture and uh, yes. West. Yes, this, this is, needless to say, the, the great flood, yes. the flood in Genesis depicted, which you see scenes and also evoking um, a Hokusai's Wave, uh, Marsden Hartley, an American painter in the early 20th century, a lighthouse there, and also this hovering helicopter, which he was painting this at about the time of the devastating uh, storm Katrina to the oh, south okay, yes. of the U.S. So. And no, so knowing that story helps me understand it so much more. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. we should say that David Sally is a local artist for a, quite a long time. He's been based in East Hampton. I he think? has yes. been here, yes, for yeah. quite a long time, yeah. which is, I, I love the way you said local, because of course <laughs> <laughs> many of these artists are big international stars. But oh, no, we, but he's international but too. We, and international, yeah. yes. But we do think of them as highly local, you yeah. know, because they have... Um, for the same reason as, as most of us come out here, is the beauty of the area, and they found it very productive for them and the creative process here. So it's lovely to, that we do think of them as our <laughs> yeah, and there's this wonderful our local artists community, as I as I remarked, yeah, and it embraces people from like me who are from outside, and yes, uh, um, and so it's it's very inspiring. I mean, maybe perhaps we should talk a little bit about the the, the longer history, not the, just the establishment of this newer building, but okay. going back to Chase and Fairfield Porter. Sure, yeah. it certainly does go back to the. Uh, in the mid-19th century when, um, as you know, many, uh, really something, an idea that of course came over from uh, Europe where many uh, painters were established there, but also this idea of going out of the studio and going out into nature en plein air, certainly the Barbizon painters, and this was also, there was a technological aspect to that in the sense that Paints were made much more portable. You could have a carrying case and set up an easel. Someone, um, you know, made the medium uh, easy, not easy, but transportable, as it way. So that this is one reason why artists got out into the open, out of the studio, and also were happy to um, 
you know, have that ability to travel. And this certainly caught on in the U.S. as well. Um, the art colonies, so to speak, that sprang up here, both in Provincetown or on the Cape Cod and also in East Hampton. Uh, for that same reason, proximity to a, a, a large metropolitan area like Boston or New York. But the ability, certainly when the train came out as far as uh, Bridgehampton, you could get a coach on to East Hampton, that's when uh, artists really started coming out. The boarding houses sprang up in um, in East Hampton to receive these artists and have them out for the weekend. So all, everything sort of came together to facilitate that. It was often said you couldn't help but see a, a artist painting behind every haystack in East Hampton, which was, you know, largely very rural and farmland around then. But uh, it really started to catch on about the uh, 1870s and 80s. Right, and then mm -hmm. of course a school was then later established, I don't remember. Yes, 1891, it was in fact, um, there was a development actually, as you might say, not, not unlike Barbizon and not unlike Giverny and other, these became, uh, you know, areas with some cachet and to attract more people uh, to the region, uh, there was the idea to establish this art school here and uh, stop in the Shinnecock Hills and also a post office. So it's sort of building up this area, which um, before that had not really been um, sought after, shall we say, for houses and buildings, second homes really here. And uh, Chase was asked, because he was such a well-known teacher uh, with schools in New York and in Philadelphia's studio, he was asked to come out and be the founding director of this art museum, uh, art colony, <laughs> art, time, and art yeah. school. Yeah. So that's when it really started to flourish. And what were some of the students that passed through that school? I mean, are they in your collection, or perhaps we should talk about some of your other collections? Uh, sure. The Porter as well, yeah. Yes, we could step into the Porter Gallery oh, if yes. you wanted to. Okay. okay. All right. Yes, I think many of the um, People who studied with Chase here had also studied with him in New York, um, like his, uh, Lydia Field Emmett or Rockwell Kent or Reynolds Beale. Um, they sort of followed him um, to, for the instruction here. It was very um, close in proximity to the uh, Shinnecock uh, Indian Reservation. And so they had these beautiful, pristine um, areas to um, go on to and sketch, and as uh, Chase said in the brochure, that they would always uh, be charged to go and visit on the reservation. So I think it was 50 cents to go and sketch every day. An interesting relationship sprung up between uh, Chase and the students and the residents of the um, Shinnecock uh, Reservation there, Shinnecock Nation. Um, certainly in the 20th century, we have Fairfield Porter. Uh, he's an artist who was working in New York, uh, based there. He had a, a growing family of five, four children, had another one when he was here. He moved out here in 1949. He had grown up um, summering in Maine. His family, in fact, had built a house on an island uh, sort of offshore in Maine, and he always said, well, if he couldn't afford to get to Maine in the summer, he'd like to be near the... Um, ocean as well, so he chose to move to Southampton. And that's a very interesting um, sort of nexus of artists grew up around him, artists who would come out to visit, uh, establish their own places, maybe Larry Rivers, uh, Alex Katz visited here, although he did wind up in Maine, um, Jane Freilicher, Jane Wilson, um, lots of artists who really sort of gravitated towards Porter because they all sort of painted figuratively. Of course, it was the heyday of abstract expressionism. But they were really drawn to sort of the circle of Porter here. And the uh, well-known poets like Frank O'Hara, John Ashbery um, also came here. Robert Dash, the painter. And uh, you have this other sort of, uh, of course, there was Pollock and, and uh, uh, de Kooning in East Hampton at the very same time, but it's interesting that uh, people who painted quite differently yeah. were still in the same uh, nexus, you might say, and uh, 
Porter always bristled at the term realist applied to his work. He said that was absolutely not correct. He said there are whole passages of my work that are abstract, what you might call abstract. He was a great admirer of de Kooning's work. Um, he wrote, he did a lot of art criticism, so he wrote about uh, all the artists who were working as well and admired many of the abstract expressions. Yeah, I mean, you see, yes, of course you do see mm -hmm. passages mm -hmm. of abstraction or of nearly pure color, well, it's, you know, broken. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we're looking at figures with, you know, a, just a suggestion of a face, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. uh, so it's fascinating, there are different periods that, uh, and the different clusters. Um, and, and during your time as the chief curator, I mean, what sort of, and it's always, it continues to be, and that's, that there was a, a more distant past, but to this day it is attracting contemporary artists that you, you mentioned some, of course, uh, David uh, mm -hmm. Sally, but um, what kind of evolution in the, in the trends or the, I don't know, I've, I've been doing interviews with some of these artists and it's not a lot of plein air anymore. Yeah. Well, this is yeah. true. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, it would be harder to name strictly landscape painters in, yeah. in, in that sense. April but Gornick, though, is a great... Well, yes, April, yeah. uh, indeed, although she does not... not she works her. from photographs. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. in that sense, but of course she is an extraordinary uh, renderer of uh, phenomena, you could almost say, clouds, yeah. water. I do think it's, there are certainly social aspects to this mm -hmm. because, you know, whether painting a landscape or doing a, uh, a conceptual piece or a large sculpture, I think artists, you know, at the core are all involved in this creative process. I always say they're, you know, they're almost like bellwethers. They, they pick up on trends, pick up on anxieties, pick up on things in the world almost before the rest of us do. And, you know, artists uh, get up, eat their cornflakes, go into, go to work, you know, they really do. And it's this, um, it's this creative process, which as Chuck Close once debunked and said, you know, uh, inspiration is for amateurs, the rest mm -hmm. of us get up and work, you know, it's yeah. not always uh, inspiration, but another great quote of his is that he always, um, anytime he sees a lot of painting, he might go into a museum, he's always astonished by the sort of transcendent moment when you realize this is sort of just colored dirt and pigment laid on the surface with what's arguably just a stick. You know, there's yeah. such um, a metaphysical <laughs> moment when uh, this, these images are created on a surface, mm -hmm. um, you know, in, in three dimension, if you're talking about something that has reference to the natural world, and in three dimension on a flat surface, when you, it's kind of a head scratcher to start. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, great art does have the, has a transcendent moment. Yes, and is that, speaking of it, it seems like a kind of magic or alchemy, you know, as you say, to capture something and you don't know at the beginning yes. what you're going to capture. You have an intention, yes. but it's still being determined in the moment. Mm -hmm. So what was it that drew you to art? And I, if I may say, the art of cura curation, which I feel is, a, is an art. Mm -hmm. Yes, like architecture, the arrangement. <laughs> Well, I, I do often go back. I was born and raised in Washington, D.C., mm -hmm. and um, as school children, I mean, from kindergarten on, we were taken, like religion, to, <laughs> like a religious pilgrimage, to the National Gallery of Art in Washington. Now, this was quite a few years ago, but uh, I can still remember sensations and feelings from those that experience. This is the great um, Henry Pope Russell building neoclassical building in, in Washington that was opened in the late 30s and uh, it, it, it's beautiful inside even as a you know child I re recognized this different space that one was in it wasn't like a house or church or a school or any most anything else one would go into it just has a very special feeling and what um, Mellon that you know major uh, donor wanted to do he, in between most of the galleries, you'll be in a gallery, you'll go through a space that is a few steps down, it's an atrium, 
their plants, their chairs to sit in. You know, nowadays in museums, everybody talks about having a coffee bar, you know, <laughs> having respite, you know, from looking at the art, which was very much his concept early on. I think that, I mean, I know that's what those rooms are. And of course, they uh, remain as these vestiges of the uh, original plans. But um, just the feeling when you go from a, a gallery into a, maybe the humidity, I can still remember. It's almost like a junk jungle atmosphere. There's a lot of humidity in there because of the plants. And I remember those sensations and also sliding along the floor. There are these highly, beautifully highly polished marble floors. And you just have that sensation of gliding along. And I don't remember, um, you know, too many paintings. Of course, I've seen them for years, but I do remember um, sort of, you know, very sentimental sort of a Renoir with the little girl with the watering can or something like that. And I also do remember distinctly going by, it's a um, Toreador who is lying on the ground. It's a mm -hmm. very horizontally long painting mm -hmm. and it looks as though it should go upright. I can remember going through and looking into that gallery and sort of thinking, why is he on that? <laughs> why is this man lying down across the floor? And of course it's fell fallen matador, but um, so I, I think that exposure, which I think all of us in this business know that um, you, one needs to be educated from a very uh, early age, and when I say educated, I mean just exposed to this thing that we call art, yes. you know, in whatever form it may be, but it should start early. <laughs> yes, it's yes. A, a language to become fluent in that well, natural. Yes, thing. yes. And of course, in critical thinking and all those language skills, all, you know, we know now research and in the education field, we know what it can mean for different, particularly different paths of learning, you know, mm -hmm. to have this exposure. So it's not just the frills anymore. And that's very much known, which is what we, we do here with school groups that come from early ages, but I mean, that was my experience. I, I felt very, first of all, I felt very at home there, mm -hmm. you know, having been exposed to it um, at such an early age and, and going on to appreciate it, going on to really study in college. I didn't know that it was exactly a path to be taken, but it was certainly what interested me most mm -hmm. and what I pursued right. after school. And yes, of course, because a lot of the programs that are now in place for curatorial studies mm -hmm, aren't, mm -hmm. and, and still there, there's, there's more right. room, uh, maybe you would say. But in terms of your educational programs and working with um, young students or artists mm -hmm, in the community mm -hmm, and bringing mm -hmm. them in, you mentioned the Shinnecock Nation, sorry, yes. Jeremy Daniels came last year and before that, um, Bestin Schmidt. And, and how, yes. what, what are the different programs you do to ignite that curiosity at a young age? Well, I think particularly when you have an artist like Jeremy, who is, as you say, a, a born and raised on the Shinnecock Reservation, also a very young artist, but able to um, hit there's a strong narrative impulse, you know, in his work. And I think that certainly the young people he has worked with here respond to that in that sense of telling stories, that they too can create their own uh, persona and uh, tell their own, create their own narrative yeah. in art and of course in writing as well. But um. It's exciting though, that, that moment of, and so I think you also sometimes do exhibits of um, stu student art or uh, children's We do, art, yeah. we have an annual student art festival which is now cresting into its 60th year, I think, which is an extraordinary uh, time. And as you say, we have a, a, a innovation of the last several years has been to have an artist in residence uh, in the fall and work done with our Southampton and Tuckahoe schools who are the ones in closest proximity to us um, which large groups of those students come and work with an artist like Jeremy or like Bastian Smith and that work and some of the um, artist in residence work are shown together in tandem with the other projects from the schools so that you have that sort of um, 
this interesting, the sort of the results of a residency, just mm -hmm. to show what that kind of uh, close interaction between students and an artist, how fruitful that can be. So that's been quite a wonderful aspect. Otherwise, it's um, the high school uh, students do, uh, junior and high school students do individual works. The younger students, K through um, six, I guess, do um, collective works from their school. So that's group work, so to speak. I think that's quite beautiful because I feel like it's a, a real, it really adds to a, like a long-term memory when you're making something and when you have this joy of making. This yeah. Artists know, but others feel sometimes shut out from mm. the creative process. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it really gives them something they, they can take back and uh, bring into whatever discipline, whether they're studying STEM yeah. or whatever. It can help them visualize. Exactly. Um, let's talk about some of the, because you have a, a wonderful collection and you've spoken about some of them, but if you were, you know, notable works or, or notable exhibitions that mm -hmm. you feel that you return to in your mind or let's say if you could have them for your own personal collection. <laughs> <laughs> you have them in a sense because you live with them here, but yes. Well, yeah. that's true. I mean, I think about um, major works. I would certainly point out this uh, work by Fairfield Porter. It's right before us. It's Anne in the studio. Again, we talk a lot about um, the studio and the experience in the studio, and in fact, the design of the museum was Herzog and Demeron, their practice is to really immerse themselves in everything about a region. So the history, the topology, the geomorphology, and needless to say, they wanted to know more about this, the history of artists here. And to that end, we um, visited quite a number of artists' studios, and they being you know, postmodernists and looking at things, they put things in typologies. If Roy Lichtenstein's was a converted garage and Chuck Close's was a converted barn and, and um, someone else had a purpose-built um, uh, structure, they really sort of looked at the different types and they uh, takeaway, you might say, was this idea of the barn and the pitched roof, which has really dictated the um, concept for the museum. As you see, it's like sort of two uh, barns in proximity, extruded, because we're about as long as this three football fields here. But um, that same idea really inspired them. And also talking about Skylight, because yeah. all these Skylight studios, which of course were ways in which the artists retrofitted the barns, mm -hmm. you know, to introduce Skylights. So, Interestingly enough, this um, uh, space of Fairfield Porter was a, a stable behind the house that they had in, on South Main Street. And I don't think there's a work here that you see the house and the stable, but um, it was right behind there. The ground floor remained the stalls. And on the top floor, he opened up the north wall, which you see the, to make a studio with a skylight and a, a picture window, so to speak, which was actually had mullions, but sometimes he didn't paint those divisions. That's the little cottage across the road there. But what's interesting about this painting, it's, it's really, you might say, ostensibly, it's a portrait of his wife, Anne, uh, like many artists, like Chase and uh, many others, his, his family, his wife and children were perhaps his best models. <laughs> they could be pressed into service. At any rate, Anne, it's a very interesting portrait of Anne, but moreover, it's an interesting portrait of the artist himself because of sort of what's tacked up on the... Um, can you see them? Yes, Do you I want to go over here. there? Uh, Close-up on the monitor. Yeah. Yes. Um, Sort of most artists and studios you visit probably have something tacked on the walls. This is almost like a, a biography. He was an extraordinary admirer of Velazquez. This is, of course, the little, um, one of the little uh, dukes in a Velazquez portrait. This is a cover of Life magazine. You can just make out this Adelaide Stevenson, who was, of course, the Democratic candidate who ran. And, uh, yeah, was sort of is that a data or no? I don't, I don't think so. I've never sort of been able to deconstruct that one. But this is, um, he was a great admirer of Stevenson, who was what you might call a liberal, 
uh, also uh, at that point in time in the 50s. So that's, uh, you know, says something about his own politics. He was certainly a socialist-leaning uh, uh, porter as a young man in the 30s, but certainly admired uh, Stevenson, who was always sometimes accused of being an elitist and not a man of the people, so to speak. Um, this um, head of the Mona Lisa, which would have been a black and white reproduction. That is, plays off the portrait of Anne. It does, yeah. it absolutely does. It also uh, is probably dallasly an allusion to, well, his own sexuality, bisexuality, which is so well known. Um, the Mona Lisa is often a coded reference to that. I mean, uh. such as Rauschenberg and Johns used it as well, of course, so interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, moment and um, th this to me is such a summative portrait as I say not only of his wife uh, but of his uh, his own feelings and his own artistic uh, inclinations so his own politics I mean yes. just looking how she laces her fingers mm -hmm. and how mm -hmm. the branches lace of and course the in oh, not interlacing, the meeting of the pattern on her <laughs> dress like the branches it, it just yes keeps on referring back it's, uh, it's quite a dress as we always <laughs> say Fairfield uh, Porter admired totally the um, uh, so-called intimus, the French painters that turned oh, yes. the 20s, we and Bona, who loved to paint interiors. Uh, yeah. yeah, wallpaper. And their wives and <laughs> yes, wall their families, wallpapers, uh, bedspreads, curtains. Bring it on. Couldn't yeah. be too much, too many. Uh, detailed patterns. You well, know, this is the art that. that we wear and that we live in. That was one of your favorite paintings here in the collection. You can do okay. one of the others. Well, I would have to say, let's look right here at this one. My name is Crystal Lee, and I am an undergraduate student attending the University of California, Irvine, pursuing a bachelor's in art with a minor in psychology. Alicia's perspective on the history of the Parish Art Museum was greatly insightful. I found interest in the narrative of community support for the arts. I've always wondered how the practice of artists in residence came to be. And the mutual respect between artists and communities manifesting into inspired artistic works truly spoke power to the arts. This sort of shared experience draws parallel to the relationship between artist and curator. There is a mutual respect and exchange, both contributing towards the construction of current culture and the arts and society. The discussion regarding exposure to art at an early age resonated with me in a significant way. When I was younger, I attended schools in communities that had little opportunity to explore artistic happenings. Along with this, the arts programs were poorly funded, and the successes of these courses were mainly due to extraordinarily passionate and dedicated educators. Alicia spoke upon the level of understanding she developed in the arts as a child, and I find this to be invaluable. Even just having access to visit museums allows people to be more aware of the current happenings of the world. Being exposed to the conversations occurring in art is evidently a luxury and a privilege to many communities. I was also drawn to Alicia's insights on her curatorial work because this is one of the art careers I was considering for myself. The concept of curators having vastly different specializations and focuses is new to me, and that may seem naive, but I did previously presume that the curator needed to be an encyclopedia of sorts in their profession, and to know of Alicia's vision, her responses to her artworks, and deep historical knowledge, it's really eye-opening. The Sand, Memory, Meaning, and Metaphor exhibition showcased this well. Alicia communicated through commonalities, connecting these artworks and composing the gallery in her personal vision. These, of course, are interesting uh, suite of paintings by some of the leading practitioners of what has uh, been called or identified as photorealism, yeah. which was uh, sort of came to be in the late 60s, early 70s, and is really still practiced today. You don't hear as much about it as a, a style. It simply means that uh, these artists quite literally worked from a photograph. But uh, what I, I think is most striking in this group, and really one of the few women who uh, was sometimes 
brought into the fold of photorealists is Audrey Flack. This is a painting from 77, 78, called Wheel of Fortune. Uh, in many ways, it diverges from uh, classic photorealism. One, one real way is there's much more uh, narrative here, really, also personal narrative, you know, sometimes through. Uh, other artists are much more interested in windows or catching the light and glass. But um, so, as I say, she did was not a did not paint this way for a, uh, a long time. But um, you have the memento mori. You have the memento mori. You have the dice and many references to chance. The tarot card uh, that is, in fact, a little vignette um, picture of the daughter. Um, but she wouldn't have to know that, but it's obviously personal, you know, someone. Yeah. And then um, I see the, the photo, the camera. Yes, the, yes, in exactly. This, or reflected in an orb. Exactly. Again, so that goes back to art history and mm -hmm. other little... Yes, and things. as you say, the, definitely the memento mori. Uh, sort of an overriding moment here, the mirror itself yeah. reflecting there. Uh, it's quite a gorgeous painting and yeah. often... Uh, really textbook. I mean, if you open to yeah. 20th century art uh, chapter, that will be there. And you know, I mean, she was one of, as I say, one of the few women who was a practitioner, so for that reason too, yeah. might be included this extraordinary, extraordinary painting. Yeah. Extraordinary painting, it really is. Wow. Yeah, there's so many beautiful echoes in it, and I see it's strange mm -hmm. because the picture space is quite full and yet That's I don't know, you know, because sometimes you think, oh, you have to have a lot, some negative space, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but at the same time, it doesn't feel <laughs> so much so. I don't know how that, she manages to make it full, but mm -hmm. also bre breathable for the eye. Yes, yes. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, I, yeah, your eye stays pretty busy, yeah. doesn't it? I guess maybe this material, but of course the uh, hourglass. Mm -hmm. The most, uh, the waning candle, all those mm -hmm. things. Um, all the symbols, time. Mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, no, it's, it, it's very interesting, really very masterful. Uh, yeah, mm -hmm. I think it's, yeah, I can see why you pick it as, as one of these <laughs> notable pieces in your collection. Okay. Well, we could look in the chase. Mm -hmm. uh, in there at chase. So, um, as I mentioned, um, this this particular iteration of our Chase collection, which we try to, uh, which we always have installed in this gallery uh, because it is so, um, so identified with the museum and certainly the region that people uh, want to see it. But um, I worked with the curator, David Van Martin, from the Shinnecock Museum here. And um, I know he had given a talk some years ago and he had shown a picture of his grandmother and great aunts and these beautiful sort of mutton uh, sleeve blouses and referred to the fact that they worked, uh, uh, they had uh, sort of market gardens, they sold vegetables to what they call the summer colonists, that's mm -hmm. the people who lived in the big houses and, uh, and also served as laundresses. And then I thought, hmm, so that's why the young Chase girls are out there in those beautifully starched dresses. You know, I thought there must be many more connections between uh, Chase and um, his neighbors, and in fact, this is this is the peninsula that's the whole Shinnecock uh, reservation. As you can see, this beautiful land that goes out in Shinnecock Bay. Yeah, I never said like this. It looks like a whale, which of course is whaling. Oh, oh that's interesting. Yes. Well, like kind of mm, yeah. wild whale. Yeah. <laughs> no, exactly. Um, this is, in fact, the art village where there was a studio where they, he taught on rainy days and also houses for the housing for the artists. But his, his um, uh, house, which you see in the painting, which was one of the perks of his coming, he wanted a house to bring his family out to in the summer. Um, he would come right down the road, right past the reservation. And uh, so he knew it well. He knew the residents well. and. Um, as I say, he had arranged for students to be able to come onto the reservation and they could be in this pristine landscape where they could look um, over to the bay. And uh, these are two of the students. And we're speaking of whaling, the Shinnecock men were the great uh, whalers in the early part of the 19th century. And um, 
after the whaling really subsided here. Some went to the South Seas with the whaling ships, but mostly they stopped doing that. They became the great hunters and guides uh, for the local people who would come out to, to hunt uh, probably deer, smaller game, but uh, these, and also exquisite uh, bird carving, which they also excelled at making the decoys. And in terms of preservation, mm -hmm. I know it's important to, you know, there are a lot of people uh, mm -hmm. who are involved with uh, environmental uh, conservation. Yes, yes, yes. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's still the most, the most pristine land here yeah. because it has not been rapidly developed on the, their, their property. Right. Oh, yes. It's so very it's beautiful. not allowed. You can't build on it. It's well. You, yes. The, most of the buildings are pre-existing, though. Mm -hmm. But it's certainly not um, um, overdeveloped. Let's say. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So, um, in terms of as you look back, in you know, like a, not a whole lifetime in art, but a considerable <laughs> time in art. I mean, what, what have you appreciated in terms of having been able to share your admiration for art and artists? What, right. How has it changed you, maybe? Well, I remember you had asked about exhibitions, yes. mainly, yes. Uh, maybe. And oh, yes, I would, okay. I, okay. Okay, and I was going to uh -huh. uh, tell about one show which mm -hmm. I did in... Uh, let me see now, 2008. Mm -hmm. um, but I had sort of had a clip file for years. I would mm -hmm. read about something, read about a certain artist, read about something. And my overarching idea was um, that was really this idea, which seemed entirely appropriate, of um, sand. Oh, OK, yes. So, sand, and I realized artists, they were artists who obviously depicted sand or scenes by the beach. There are a lot of artists, particularly in the early or 20th century, who put sand in their work, yes. including Pollock and mm -hmm. many artists. There was sort of sand as metaphor for mm -hmm. shifting. There, yes, yes, <laughs> yes. the sands of time. And then sand in, in, in a political sense as well. It was a sort of a political factor in the sand of rising sand, the shifting sand, oh, okay. things like that. The uh, great... Um, artist who did the sand, and actually I couldn't show the video, I didn't have room, but this idea of the sand where people actually moved a sand hill, mm -hmm. which was interesting. But um, So I, I sort of divided the show into those five uh, themes. Uh, one, uh, much of the work was political, this idea of counting some grains of sand, which you could hardly, uh, one artist had taken that idea and then applied it to the number of people incarcerated. Mm -hmm. that you could hardly count the number of yeah. the numbers of people incarcerated in the U.S. So there was a sand counting laboratory. Mm -hmm. And as you were doing that, the numbers were ticking up on a, a readout. So there, there was a lot of political work that... Um, uh, there was a Pollock, there was a David Smith of sand in the medium. Mm -hmm. A beautiful piece by uh, Jasper Johns, which we were so lucky to have. He. Uh, was from uh, South Carolina, mm -hmm. uh, down, he actually grew up near the, the water uh, on the uh, beaches and sands, and his friend Frank O'Hara visited, and um, he made a plaster cast out of Frank's foot, oh. and later sort of memorialized it in a box of, um, just talking about the shifting after Frank died, it was this. So the title of the show was uh, "Sand, Memory, Meaning, and Metaphor." So all those different ideas. It just uh, and and I must have been thinking about that for quite a long time. I know I was because mm -hmm. things would come up. Just the many many ways that artists had depicted sand or brought it into their work or used it as metaphor. So mm -hmm. that was something. Well, it's interesting because then those each of those artworks can be in conversation with each other when they might not have been. Yes, that's true too. And then maybe or unconsciously because they are from the region. Most right, of them. right. Um, so that's and so also while you've been here and, and we've spoken about the um, the immense um, the wealth of talent, mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. the diversity of talent here, um, and you see artworks 
in progress? Because it's a very tight community here, or how, you know, to, to mm -hmm. see the evolution of artists. Well, that too. I mean, um, quite often, if one, for whatever reason, one would either ask to come to on a studio visit, which yes. often happens, um, generally when you sort of have an idea in mind, I mean, you don't want to walk in sort of empty-handed to a studio <laughs> visit, yes. because I think any time that you sort of raises expectations, or an artist will invite one over if um, he or she is working on something new, you know, and one sort of would like to have some feedback. Mm -hmm. So, um, I mean, that's a very interesting relationship too. I think, you, you know, I'm saying artists you know well or have known over a long period of time and are familiar with their work, they sort of value hearing mm -hmm. what one might think, um, who has that history, so to speak what might think of something that, new that they're trying. Um, and yes, you do often see things in progress, works mm -hmm. in progress. I think some artists might not like that. You know, they would rather... Yeah, they protect it to Yes, the they would, uh, you know, maybe turn it around and look at something more finished. Not always. I have seen works. But you know, uh, what fascinates me too is I understand that, and I've heard that you mentioned um, uh, April Gornick, and mm -hmm, I know sometimes mm -hmm. she shows like videos of uh, work in progress, mm -hmm. but in, in being very protective. And I, and I liked mm -hmm, an artwork mm -hmm. that was in progress, and, and I'm fascinated in, and I imagine a curator mm -hmm. is too, that something not quite finished that reveals the thinking process. Mm-hmm, mm -hmm. um, Yeah, I mean, and then what you all often see in artists, you'll see layers or things have been covered or redone, and I've often thought, gee, I wonder where that was. <laughs> Could just go back? Yeah, right. No, that is interesting. That is interesting to see. And Did you visit April? Yes, oh, I, inter I interviewed her, and I was actually a re um, an artist in residence through their, an inaugural artist in residence through their program in uh, Sag Harbor in collaboration with the Guild Hall oh. as well, at the same time oh. as their residency. So, well, I didn't know that. So you've um, been here a while. Yeah, well, no, that was before. Oh. That was in winter, and I came back. I had to return to Paris, so I'm resuming. But this year? It was this year? Um, the mm -hmm. end of last year. Oh, um, interesting. It October, November. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, um, but then we have some collaborations with people in the community and uh, oh, Guild Hall. Yeah. So it's um, a very inspiring place, and I, I didn't get a chance to visit everyone, uh, so it was wonderful. But I didn't want to make it with me. But um, oh, yes, about how you trained your eye. Because this interests me too, because sometimes, and you think about artists or whatever the discipline is, you can mm -hmm. be doing something a long time. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, as a curator, mm -hmm. you're looking a long time. Mm -hmm. And how do you refresh your senses? Mm -hmm. and, or mm -hmm. how do you. I know you see very well, sometimes you can see so much through the intellect, too. I mean, do you know mm -hmm. what I'm talking about? I, I think intellectually, sure, yeah. you might look at things, but I just, you, you, you're constantly looking, I think, yeah. as a uh, curator. Yeah, I, I, I think it's probably less intellectual and more just uh, an immediate response, you yes. know, to the color, the form, the shape, the, the idea. I mean, conceptual art is large, you know, it's idea-based, so you're not yes. really looking. And so I suppose you could say that's intellectual, it's not aesthetic in a way, but, you know, there is really an aesthetic of ideas, you know, mm -hmm. that is so yeah, extraordinary. I I'm interested <laughs> in the way of seeing of, we can't say, you're an individual, but of a curator, you know, mm -hmm, how you're mm -hmm. breaking images apart, the historical perspective mm -hmm, or the mm -hmm, construction mm -hmm. aesthetic you know what are the what are the well, stages I probably come I mean as an art historian and a, okay. you know having a PhD I I'm certainly grounded in in the history mm. and and that uh, which I feel is critical to understanding a, an artist and and how they painted and what they painted and where they painted um I'm probably less versed I mean I know many uh people who, who, who know more, who actually studied as artists as well. I had, you know, mm -hmm. I'm not that grounded in, uh, in technicalities of material in that sense and, and uh, uh, evolutions of, um, you know, acrylic, magna paint, gold. Mm -hmm. <laughs> There's a lot of technical yeah. things and I think many, I'm, I wouldn't want to say less interested because that just sounds dismissive, but, um, Maybe that's it. Uh, you have Porter's painting materials, and of course he used lead 
you know, lead, white, and the paint. It's important to know those things. I don't think I usually, it's not a major, major point of my research or, or my writing, you know, in a way what happened with that paint, um, what, what was the organic makeup of it is less interesting to me than the fact that it dripped. <laughs> yeah, how you know? it moves you, the arrangement. Yeah, yeah. really. Uh, although I, uh, many people are much more versed in that, I think, because having maybe a background more in the tech, in the studio art, I took one year of painting. I'm not particularly gifted, <laughs> but I did, uh, you know. It's but it is important to have that year because I think oh, some is. people are yes. so removed yes. that they don't. You have an appreciation, and you absolutely, can see it. absolutely. What I think is happening now with maybe a lot of younger curators, and I see it, and I. Um, something to watch is they don't see the objects, you know, they can, yeah, yeah they can curate objects from a screen, and uh, I have, I've asked for loans of works that I've never really seen, you know, yeah. but not, you know, I, I really think that's risky in a lot of ways, but I find, I mean, you know, images on screen are so gorgeous, you know, mm. oh, that's wonderful. It's a varnish. Yeah. And of course you have no sense of scale, mm -hmm. you know. But I, I do see that it's much more prevalent these days for yeah. younger, younger students, younger curators. And it, it's extremely helpful when you're you know, looking for paintings or looking at ideas or writing about artists. You can see everything they ever did. But I would caution against um, you know, those determining final decisions. I think you need to see the work. Yeah, really constantly. It, mm -hmm. Well, really, mm -hmm. that's what it distinguishes the, the visual arts, isn't it? It is this sensory experience that's oh, yes. quite removed. Yeah, I mean, you know, we're in the business. I'd like to. <laughs> we're in the business of keeping this proximity to the object, the real object. To, uh, that's what we're selling here, so, yeah. you know, in a way. <laughs> well, experiences, because we've had yeah. so many of these digital removed experiences, and I guess yeah, then that's, I guess one of the, the missions of our project was a creative process, mm -hmm. an educational initiative, mm -hmm. but it is something that troubles people who are paying attention. I think mm -hmm. more and more we are paying mm -hmm. attention is that how the digital world, this technological Supplanting. world, mm, how is it changing our imagination? You, yeah, you've seen sure. the influence on young artists or mm -hmm. even mm -hmm. older artists. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The level in which it can be a tool, but then a tool that right. changes conversations and yeah, no, I mean you see it. I mean, I would say the most artists who are serious about their craft are serious about looking at the entire cavalcade of art history. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I, uh, certainly most artists I know are extremely knowledgeable of eighteenth or primitive art, or you know, they look at art. Yes. You know, they really, really do. And um, it can be inspired in their work by something that, you know, on the surface you might think would be totally tangential to what they're doing. That will, mm -hmm. that will inspire them. But that's, that's the creative process. You know, they take it all in. So I'm not, it's, it's not so much artists I worry about because I yeah. think they are... Um, by nature, interested in all other art, but I, I, uh, I worry about l losing an audience of, mm -hmm. you know, <laughs> a gener of generations. I just, um, not that there won't always be museums, but it does take, it does take training, it does take proximity, it does take going. I mean, you know, museums become like uh, many things, many fans. Everybody's busy. Everybody's working two jobs. I mean, who? I do think it's important for the schools to nurture this, too. I have a funny story about a young man who was a, um, my daughter's age, and he went to school, went off to college in Boston, and the first weekend he said to some of his new friends he'd made all, this is interesting. I hear this is an interesting museum. Um, let's go to that. And they all kind of looked at him like, you know, they went, didn't grow up going to museums. They didn't know much about them. Mm -hmm. And he said something funny to me, who, you know, knowing that I worked here. He said, you know, I thought everybody had a great museum in their little town. Oh. <laughs> Which was so touching to me because yeah. he had, you know, 
he had done it. He'd come up through the schools, he'd visited the museum, uh, even annually. I think it makes a big difference, and then come back to programs. So, I mean, I'm a believer. <laughs> I think so, and I think it is important to have spaces that encourage uh, a deep reflection and to examine yes. our feelings. Yes. You were talking in the beginning about how pictures tell a story, mm -hmm, and sometimes mm -hmm. pictures, well, say not just pictures, but of course sculpture mm -hmm, have, mm -hmm. um, allows us to hold a moment still and to really consider it, right, right. particularly in our times now. Right. And I think this building fulfills that, you know, those same things I thought about in coming into the National Gallery um, as a child. You know, it is a different space. It is a, um, an amazing space. Even some people who were sort of standoffish of local people seeing the, you know, the building and the landscape. I've never known anyone who came in who wasn't really disarmed mm -hmm. by the space, disarmed of any you know, preconceptions they had. I mean, it's just thrilling to walk through. Mm -hmm. I think it's very felicitous. Space to art, <laughs> that the space is very welcoming to art and it yeah. looks, um, uh, displays well, I think, almost I everything think we so. show well, here. I think one mark is that I like to, is to, I like to visit a space and I like to feel, this feels very inspiring. This mm -hmm, makes me feel, mm -hmm. I think about how the art was created and I get a sense and I see mm -hmm. the atmosphere. These are the kind of views mm -hmm. that they had and what is continuing to draw the artists here. Right. And it makes me want to go, go home or return to my space and do something. It seems mm -hmm. like an invitation for that. So I think okay. it's lovely what you're doing with your educational Good. programs, mm -hmm. your community programs. I guess you're coming up to your summer event too. Um, Everything's coming and in. <laughs> and we do yeah. a lot now with arranging out more programs to um, uh, visitors with Alzheimer's oh, and yes. Parkinson's. And of course we have worked with uh, develop the de through the grades with developmentally challenged students and uh, all of that, I mean, you know, there is much research and much praxis now in these areas that so much has developed. And so we've had really wonderful new programs that have brought different groups in. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a very robust and, and really ever-evolving mm -hmm. uh, aspect of the work, too, mm -hmm. which is... Yeah, art yeah. is a healing process. Yes. Art is a learning yes. process. Yes. yes, definitely. And uh, it can, you know, be creative in ways you didn't uh, imagine that certain, uh, certain people could do. And it, it's very rewarding, certainly for our teachers, for all of us, really, to work with them. Well, thank you so much, Alicia. Oh, Mia, well, thank you. And for everything that you've done and the Parish Art Museum for um, inviting us in to um, experience art in this very... Mm -hmm. um, organic, inspiring way. Yeah. Thank you for adding your voice to the creative process. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews Producer on this podcast was Crystal Lee. Assignment Editor is Sorella Lark. Digital Media Coordinator is Camille Montalino. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. Has this interview sparked your creative process? If so, you could submit your creative works to submissions at creativeprocess.info for an opportunity to be included in the projection elements of our exhibition, Traveling to Leading Universities, or published on our website, www.creativeprocess.info. Want to get involved in exhibitions or interviews? Email us at team at creativeprocess.info.